Welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Joanna Hossa. I am Deputy Director of ECFR's Wider Europe Programme. And this week we will talk about Ukraine, its domestic and international outlook and what the EU can and should do to support Ukrainian sovereignty. I am very happy to welcome Svitlana Zalishuk, advisor to the Deputy Prime Minister of Ukraine, advisor to the CEO of Naftogaz and a former member of parliament in Ukraine, as well as Andrew Wilson, professor of Ukrainian studies at the UCL University College London and senior policy fellow at ECFR, focusing on Ukraine and comparative politics of democratization in the post-Soviet states. Thank you both very much for joining us today. Thanks, John. So let's start with the domestic situation in Ukraine. Andy, you just published a paper looking at whether President Zelensky is leading a general anti-oligarch campaign in Ukraine. Can you tell us about your conclusions and do you see progress in the fight against corruption and Russian influence in Ukraine? Well, Volodymyr Zelensky has been president for two years now. As many of you know, he was originally an actor, a comedian, a kind of postmodern figure. And the line between the character that he played on TV and his actions as president has always been a little bit blurred, a little bit postmodern. His first kind of period as president, he got mixed reviews, mostly good, I guess. But last year, mostly bad. You know, he was seen as overconcerned with presentation and performance and going backwards on substantive issues. But this year, we've had a relaunch. So the first question is, you know, how substantial is it? Or is it just a, a series reboot, to use TV terminology? We've seen moves that have surprised many observers and do look increasingly substantive. First of all, taking on the key oligarch and agent of Russian influence in Ukraine, Viktor Medvedchuk. Secondly, the removal of uh, powerful interior minister Avarkov, a so-called anti-oligarch bill. Uh, introduced into Parliament, and most recently, substantive judicial reform. I mean, we can talk about each of those issues individually, but they're starting to add up to something real and positive. But the second question, I guess, is, is it being done in the right way? And there, the, the picture is much more mixed, particularly because of the importance of judicial reform. It's quite worrying that most of this is being done through the National Security and Defence Council, charging various people with treason uh, and other measures, rather than using Parliament, um, although some of these measures are, are legislative. Uh, and some of it looks like, you know, the classic TV trope, you know, the populist president impatient with the system, taking shortcuts uh, and putting bad guys in jail. Most recently, there was measures against uh, organised crime figures, for example. But all of them had exotic names, you know, they were all sort of, the Cooks's and so on. It, lo it looked sort of like, like made-for-TV populism. So there are a lot of legal shortcuts. And the biggest question, I guess, is whether this is general or just Zelensky taking out his enemies, because many oligarchs are also political opponents or, or linked to political opponents. And the approach so far has been pretty selective. You can see that it works out to Zelensky's political advantage in the long run. And some of it is about um, improving his standing in the opinion polls. Uh, that was falling and it's gone back up. 
Lastly, I guess, foreign policy, that a lot of this is being done at America's bidding, uh, and we'll talk about that shortly, rather than out of the kind of purity of domestic motives. Uh, so it looks substantive, but big questions about whether it's being done in the right way and for the right motives. Svetlana, do you agree? And uh, where do you see the biggest uh, achievements and the biggest problems domestically? Well, after listening to Andrew, I just caught myself uh, on the thought that probably we need to uh, reset the narrative around Ukraine, a strategic narrative around Ukraine, because this synonymous line, Ukraine, corruption, oligarchs, is probably the same since, I don't know, since I remember myself. But Ukraine is not corruption oligarchs today. Acknowledging all the problems that we have, it is very important at the same time that uh, major reforms are happening and uh, have uh, happened. And Ukraine has never been better, simply put it, uh, than now probably. But yes, of course, with all of the problems they have, but nevertheless, it's not enough. But it is a lot. When it comes to Zelensky and his role in reforms agenda, well, it has to be said that from the very beginning, there were a lot of like uh, doubts, I would say, who is Mr. Zelensky, where he will lead Ukraine to EU? Is he going to make some compromises to Russia? It was my personal doubts. I didn't know whom we are dealing with, whom country elected as a president. But later on, and I can tell you now, and I can see it very well, that uh, president became ideologically converted, if I may choose this phrase, himself being EU and NATO proponent. And uh, he's probably uh, at this point uh, is the strongest promoter of EU and NATO integration in Ukraine. Uh, we could have, we, we felt this change pretty radical. And uh, I think that it's very good for Ukraine because it gives us also the perspective of how country will develop uh, further. Some of the reforms, by the way, I believe are real breakthroughs. And none of the presidents before dared to do these reforms. And these are electoral, secret service, and oversight in the van sphere. Why? Electoral reform was always an instrument to be re-elected for current power. Uh, but when President Zelensky came, he immediately voted on this new electoral code that we were fighting for uh, as a civil society actor. I was uh, campaigning for it and then in the parliament, but there was no chance whatsoever. Secondly, we're just moving now with this secret service reform. It has been uh, adopted in the first reading. I do believe that it will be supported in the second reading pretty soon. And um, it was also a very untouchable institution. Why? Because it was always president's right hand to deal with those you know, difficult issues uh, when you didn't need publicity and where you didn't want any accountability. And Zelensky really dared to go forward and to offer this change that is, by the way, supported uh, now by NATO, by EU, by all of our international uh, stakeholders. And finally, the oversight in defense sphere. It's not a secret that even two and a half years ago, defense sphere still remained one of the sources of the corruption because the public procurements, a lot of money, especially during the war. Uh, so I believe that Zelensky uh, did this good step uh, with regards to the public procurement reform. And there was a huge demand and huge criticism over the former power 
about these problems, about the corruption in this sphere. So I think it's also kind of his breakthrough. I will also mention probably land reform, which no one did because of the uh, ratings aftermath impact. Uh, people do not support land reform, but nevertheless, he went with it. Uh, he also enacted anti-corruption court, finally. I was one of the authors of this legislation in the parliament, uh, but there were still problems with its work, and Zelensky gave the authority uh, to the anti-corruption court to work properly. Uh, Andrew just mentioned this uh, judicial system uh, reform. Recent laws that have been adopted in the parliament really, in my mind, one of the most important legislation that has been voted in the last seven years. Also, I, I think that Andrew has mentioned it in his publication, uh, the, the Competition for National Agency of Preventing of the Corruption, which went very well, completely transparent, very competitive, and we have really independent person who is monitoring uh, corruption and conflict of interest of all of the people in the power. Of course, uh, Zelensky went after Medvedchuk, one of the Russian uh, puppet oligarchs in Ukraine that was extremely influential and no one dared to go after Medvedchuk. Uh, and Zelensky did. And I think that many people applauded him uh, in Ukraine, even those people who didn't vote for Zelensky and who, and who wouldn't vote ever for Zelensky, but uh, people really applauded uh, for this step because Medvedchuk was getting stronger and stronger in Ukraine. He had a lot of influence over the TV uh, media, and it allowed Russian and uh, Russia, sorry, the fifth column to flourish uh, in Ukraine. I would probably stop here. I, I can mention many other reforms that have been voted, but what I'm trying to say that there was a, a lot of progress. A lot of progress as a citizen and as a politician, I would support Andrew. That I, that I would see much more radical transformation and faster transformation because the competition is big, the expectations are high, and the problems are, are, are very dramatic. And in order to overcome that. We need real changes and real transformation. That's the only way to deal with them. Thank you, Svitlana. And that's a great overview and very many issues indeed. And one issue that we have not mentioned yet is the situation in the Donbass uh, region and the Crimea. So where are we with peacemaking, which was uh, one of the priorities of uh, Zelensky? Can you, can you tell us a bit more, Svitlana? Yeah, so I think that when Zelensky came into the power, there was some new dynamics. Uh, Zelensky was ready to do some unconventional things, uh, some steps that even have been uh, uh, disadvised <laughs> by our international partners. Uh, but uh, he did it, and he received number of results, in particular, the release of political prisoners. That's the biggest achievement, of course, and it's very appreciated in Ukrainian society. At the same time, it has to be said that at the moment it's frozen. Uh, the, the negotiations, the progress in Minsk agreement, in Normandy for, format, in uh, the direction of the deoccupation on Crimea. And it couldn't be otherwise, in my mind, from the very beginning, uh, everyone understood that uh, Putin will will not make compromises. There is no person in this world, either it's Zelensky or anyone else, who will be um, who who will be able. 
to convince Putin to do different from what he is doing now. And by the way, this his recent article uh, that he published on the historical unity of Russians and Ukrainians are very good uh, proof uh, to, to this uh, thing as his monologue with his internal psychotherapist, you know, <laughs> because uh, no doubt that Ukraine is his biggest desire, but also the biggest fear. He wants it and he will never have it. He doesn't believe uh, in Russian empire without Ukraine and he hates the idea that Ukraine will never uh, become part of it or will never be back to his, uh, you know, backyard. Uh, and this article, by the way, once again, just uh, reminded us that Ukrainians did the only right choice in 2014 to choose a democratic path, a Euro-Atlantic path uh, of the development. Uh, it's interesting, by the way, that uh, Russian president, um, you know, restarted this kind of discourse on Ukraine being part of, uh, of, of Russia, of Russian nation, uh, probably with new uh, level and passion since 2015, mm -hmm. maybe. I think that Putin is personally very angry with uh, President Zelensky for uh, this home arrest of uh, Mr. Medvedchuk. And uh, in this article, he is also uh, repeating this thought that Ukrainian nation uh, is one thing and Ukrainian power or uh, elected power government is completely different. And we love the first and we believe that the power that, is being, uh, that has been elected is just puppets of the West. But uh, we have to remind Putin that, uh, well, this power, this government, this president has been elected by, by Ukrainian population. Um, I think that uh, my last like a conclusion here that um, from the very first day, even of not the revolution of dignity, but the orange revolution that uh, happened in 2004, the head of the Kremlin, Putin, uh, just uh, demonstrates full incapability to understand and to believe that people has have the freedom and able to choose uh to, to, to choose this freedom. I think this is the, the fundamental thing that he can he is he is not capable to absorb and afraid that the Ukraine can be also the future of Russia. Thank you and thank you for mentioning this article. That was going to be my next question. Uh, because it's very interesting. The idea uh, of the article itself it's not new. We know that President Putin thinks that uh, Ukrainians are not really a separate nation. Uh, Andy, maybe you can tell us more. Why do you think that he published this article, such a long one and with such new passion? Why at this particular moment? And what message does he want to send also to the West, where it was commented quite widely? Well, as Svetlana says, um, it's partly a kind of um, psychology document. He, he's clearly obsessed with Ukraine, meaning that he wrote most of it. I do think he did, actually. It's sort of full of Putinist tropes, external government and so on. I teach a course called The Making of Modern Ukraine, which is half history. So I think we're going to start with that next term. I think students will have to spot at least 20 mistakes in the text. <laughs> so many, so much bad history. Where to start? <laughs> Even in the Tsarist era, there was this idea of unity and diversity, a three in one. 
Rus nation of Russians, Ukrainians and Belarusians. The emphasis was obviously on unity, but there was some admission of diversity. And in Putin's piece, there isn't even that. that There is this assumption of common history, which elades very frequently into simple Russian history. There's no acknowledgement of Ukrainian difference. Yes, Ukrainians and Russians have been part of the same political structures at various times in history, but there are huge gaps in all of that time spent apart and developing separately and differently, and no recognition whatsoever of subjectivity, that Ukrainians might you know, have their own views on what their identity and history might be. So really bad history, but as a signal, Ukraine doesn't exist. It doesn't have any history. It is the, the puppet of foreign powers imposing their own external government, you know, his favourite current trope. This is extremely worrying uh, in security terms. Um, message that we should all read, not just my students. It should be compulsory reading in House and um, Brussels. So let us turn to um, to US Ukraine relations. There have been high hopes in Ukraine um, when Joe Biden took office. So how do you see the difference between uh, relations between uh, US and Ukraine between when Donald Trump was still in office and uh, since Joe Biden took office? We saw. Biden's administration on and off deployment of two warships to the Black Sea in April. Then neither Georgia nor Ukraine uh, was invited to the NATO summit. And then the US mostly abandoned its uh, opposition to Nord Stream 2. But also then Biden invited Zelensky into the White House for, for August. So how was it all perceived in Ukraine and where do you see uh, the US-Ukraine relations at the moment? Uh, Andy, maybe you can start. Well, maybe... Again, there was too much emphasis on the individual, uh, that because of Biden's own past, you know, he, he had the Ukraine portfolio when he was vice president under Obama. He's visited the country many times, and he and his son were embroiled in um, the scandal around Ukraine that resulted in Trump's first impeachment. So the Ukrainians expected uh, personal attention Uh, commitment to Ukraine security and uh, a desire to disentangle relations from the kind of murky shenanigans around Giuliani and um, others fishing for dirt and compromise in Ukraine. And on the American side, a kind of linkage, rightly or wrongly, I guess, between security and reform that, rightly or wrongly, America was prepared to support Ukraine uh, more, but insofar as it reformed to a greater degree. Um, and although in the paper I said that this linkage, this kind of form of tough love, um, was basically a good idea, at the moment you, the Americans seem to be taking it too far, demanding too much and offering too little. Uh, visit has been pushed back into August, kind of dead, uh, late August, kind of dead zone, news is in the US. The Americans have ignored Zelensky's security overture, uh, talk of close relations with NATO, and went ahead with approving Nord Stream 2 without Ukraine even being in the room or its voice being heard, uh, which is a terrible signal. So Ukraine still wants the meeting, obviously, um, still hopes to get political dividends out of it. You can see there has been a kind of Midsummer rush to kind of put all the ducks in line uh, to try and show the Americans that, that 
Ukrainians are serious about reform. Uh, but at the moment, uh, America is not giving much in return. And on North Stream 2, I think, has by basically ignoring Ukraine's objections, um, has undermined this basic um, trade-off in the deal. Ukraine is offering the reform both for domestic reasons and to please the Americans, but in security terms, I think um, Ukraine has been badly let down. Thank you, Andy. Svetlana, do you agree that the US is not giving much in return? What does Ukraine now expect expect from the summit with Joe Biden? And uh, what, what was the Ukrainian reaction to the recent deal between Germany and the states on the Nord Stream? Well, if you ask me about like three maybe short characteristics of where Ukraine-US relationships are now, I would say suffered from a long pause, has to be reset, and big expectations from the visit. I will decipher it a little bit. So I believe that, of course, during the Trump-Zelensky period of time, it was a disastrous relationship. Trump behaved as an abuser biggest geopolitical abuser in the world, and Zelensky was his victim number one, you know. Uh, so it couldn't work uh, very well. Uh, then there were elections in US, obviously there was some pause, and then the pandemic started. And uh, I have to tell you that uh, it was only first Ukrainian delegation of members of parliament who traveled to uh, DC and met their Congress colleagues last week. So there was no proper and quality contact on all of the levels. And what I see now is that there is a lack of this understanding of this strategic framework of what is it there between Ukraine and US? What is it there that US is ready to invest in Ukraine as one of the, uh, I would say, leaders, of course, of the transformations in the regions, as one of the hopes uh, of the uh, you know, changes that can happen here further, even with Russia, and also as one of the uh, long-term receiver of all that assistant in order to, to, to keep the security, to, to, if you want, I would say, even to uh, defend the eastern flank of NATO. This is how I see it in security terms. So we need this new strategic framework. We have to have it on the paper. We need the whole world to see it, the Ukrainians to see it, the Americans to hear it, because I believe that successful Ukraine is the denominator of U.S. successful foreign policy. U.S. will not be a successful country. Biden will not be a successful president if uh, he will abandon Ukraine and there will be like a, another uh, U.S.-Russia reset or even, you know, even uh, efforts to, to look that way. It's just not going to work. Also, I think that we need a new strategic engagement uh, we need, uh, you know, we need someone like uh, Joseph Biden, who is the question is, who is our new Joseph Biden uh, in yes? Why I'm saying that? Because before when Biden was vice president, of course, he was the key person in U.S. who traveled here, who understood the agenda, who could move forward many things, who was personally involved. We need someone like that. With a, it, it has to be someone professional, but also with a big name and with a, with a mandate, with an authority uh, to move forward uh, this relationship. Uh, now, when it comes to Nord Stream 2, 
Of course, uh, I mean, I will not surprise you when I say that it was a huge, huge disappointment. Personally for me, but for the whole society, for the whole uh, generation of those reformers that Biden knew personally when he traveled here and when he met us. Uh, we believe that it was a wrong move. It's bad for Ukraine, for you and for US itself. And uh, we I also think that probably uh, American ad administration underestimates the overall impact of this decision on the politics in Ukraine, on the mood uh, that prevails here amongst, uh, you know, a political elite. Because um, Kiev Post, one of our English-speaking uh, newspaper, wrote an article after this uh, German-US statement and called it a big letters, betrayal. This is, uh, this is the mood, this is the feeling here. And I think that it can be, well, if not dangerous, then uh, it definitely enhanced the Russian narrative. Because Putin was saying from the very beginning, since 2014, you'll see they will, sorry for the language, they will ditch you, they will betray you, they don't care. It's, uh, yeah, it's the unity of our nations that will uh, bring, you, bring you success. So basically, it was a gift to Russia, to his puppets here, uh, to his puppets elsewhere, to convince many, many Ukrainians that actually that was true. And you're absolutely right that it doesn't, um, this statement that has been signed uh, between US and Germany doesn't give any, any, any security assurances. It reminds us of Budapest memorandum that was signed in 1994 when Ukraine voluntarily uh, refused from uh, nuclear power in exchange for security guarantees. It never, it never worked. And when Russia occupied Donbass and annexed Crimea, those security guarantees coming from US and Britain and France at that point never worked. So we believe that this statement is just uh, its continuation of that uh, Budapest memorandum. I think and I hope then President, when President Zelensky will be in US, uh, two presidents will have good dialogue, good visit, a strategic conversation uh, on, uh, on, on the broad agenda, which will include security uh, and energy. Ukraine is coming to US with very concrete proposals of what actually can be done. Uh, and uh, I hope that there will be enough, uh, you know, um, wisdom and efforts uh, to, to move forward with those uh, proposals. So the US had a very important role to play on Nord Stream uh, 2, but Germany is uh, at the core of the, of the issue. So what do you think can Germany do now and what can the EU uh, more broadly do now to support Ukraine more and to, uh, to relieve this, at least relieve, uh, remedy this feeling of betrayal? Um, well, you're asking how Germany can support us. I think that Ukraine doesn't need support in this direction. You know, there was this principle when uh, EU is dealing with Ukraine that more for more, the more reforms Ukraine does, the more support EU provides. But in this particular area, I'll have to say that Ukraine fully implemented the third energy package in our legislation. We've done this important unbundling on our uh, gas uh, production and gas transit. And by the way, Andrew has mentioned it also in his publication as one of the achievements during Zelensky time, right? Uh, the idea of this third energy package to uh, decrease the monopoly 
to create uh, more fair prices to increase the competition on the market. And Ukraine, uh, since 2014, is very reliable and predictable player on the market. And what we ask, we don't need support in this direction. We need is what we need is fair rules. Uh, and the idea is that actually Nord Stream 2 is only increasing uh, the, the monopoly of Gazprom uh, of EU. Uh, Gasp, uh, North Stream 2 also runs against the Green Deal uh, policy. Uh, North Stream 2 creates the security issues uh, for Ukraine and for Poland. It was a deterrent, if you want, against further escalation from Russian side for Ukraine. Now, by killing the transit route uh, with European hands, basically, um, I believe that Germany in particular enables Putin uh, to encourages him to continue his hybrid aggression in many spheres, not just energy sphere. So, uh, and our approach is like, look, before 2006, just after the Orange Revolution, Russia actually cut down the uh, another transit from Turkmenistan through Ukraine, Turk gas through Ukraine. It was done also like a punishment after another revolution and democratic choice. Uh, we are saying, okay, you want uh, you, you, you want Nord Stream 2, Let's make sure that Gazprom is also playing by the rules and not with the rules. Let's uh, coerce them. Let's convince them. Let's negotiate with them so that they open for Central Asian countries the possibility to transit the gas through Ukraine. It's good for you. It's good for Russia. It's good for Ukraine. It's this diversification of the routes. It's the diversification of, of the gas as well. Also, we say, okay, we are ready uh, also to, to deal it in a way when European companies, for example, will buy the gas not on the western border, but on the eastern border with, of Ukraine, uh, on the border with Russia, when European companies will be able to contract the gas directly from Gazprom and we'll be happy to have them as our customers and provide our transit uh, services for them. That will also, by the way, there are other extractors of the gas in Russia itself, and we will be happy to transit that gas. But there is a monopoly, and this monopoly is accepted. And we believe that it contradicts the third energy uh, package. And that's why the Minister for Foreign Affairs, Kuleba, after the statement that has been um, signed between US and Germany, started an official consultations in accordance with our association agreement between EU and Ukraine, which says very clearly that both sides have to respect and use those current infrastructure, gas infrastructures that already uh, exist. So I, this dialogue is not over. I believe that the battle is lost for Ukraine, but the war is not. We will keep on counteracting Nord Stream 2 using the European law, using the European rules. And I think we will also continue our negotiations with Germany, EU and uh, Americans to convince them to actually uh, <laughs> to make European rules really working on the European market. And I'm afraid uh, we have to come to the end of this discussion. And I also wanted to announce that the podcast will take a little summer vacation. We'll be back in five weeks, right in time for the run-up to the German elections and our new 
opinion polling results on Europe in a post-COVID world and German foreign policy leadership. But before we take this break, uh, we have one thing left to do on our podcast, and this is, of course, our bookshelf segment. So, um, Andy, what are you reading at the moment? And anything our listeners should read during their holidays? Well, for the holidays, um, I'm reading a fun French novel called Civilizations by Laurent Binet, um, in which uh, the Incas invade Europe rather than the other way around. Uh, that's great. Um, but I'm also reading uh, Andrea Bernstein's book, American Oligarchs, about the Kushners and the Trumps, which is great uh, political and uh, business background. And it's basically like Succession, the uh, TV series, um, if any uh, listeners are familiar with that. Great. Uh, Svetlana, what are your recommendations? Yeah, so I want to cheat a little bit and I'm reading something else now, but I want to recommend one of the books that really inspired me by Shimon Paris. You probably read it, No Room for Small Dreams. I really loved it. It's about uh, about personal story of um, Shimon Paris who came to Israel as a small uh, boy from at that point his native Poland and started to build his own country. And to, just to give you the flavor of the book, the air fleet that they started to build, they first like constructed the airplane with their own hands, just one of them and then sold them and sold it. And then they earned money invested in the construction of other airplanes and then sold them and then reinvested the money. This is how they created one of the most modern and strong athletes uh, in the region. Uh, This is one of the examples of how they were building Israel. uh, Israel. And of course, for Ukrainians, it's an extremely uh, inspiring book. But I also think that the readers will enjoy it immensely. Wonderful. Thank you. And um, I would like to recommend a book entitled Now We Have Your Attention by Jack Schenker, who traveled around the United Kingdom trying to understand his own country and the people behind various new movements that now demand the government's attention. It is written in a very engaging way and helps understand the many factors that have developed in the UK since the 2008 financial crisis, including the famous Brexit vote. And I would also like to recommend our top four podcast list that will soon be published on our website, uh, where we collected some older but still very interesting and relevant podcasts for you to listen to in August while we are on a break. If you have enjoyed listening to this podcast, please do let other people know by writing about it on your social media page or other. But above all, please do give us a good rating and review on whichever platform you used to download this podcast. We will put a link to all the publications we mentioned on our website, ecfr.eu slash podcasts. But for now, from Svitlana Zalishuk, Andrew Wilson, and myself, Joanna Hossa, it is goodbye. The researcher of this podcast is Lucy Haupenthal, and the editor of this week's episode is Oz Russell. 